How many people here have both vaccinations? Ooh, wonderful. How many have one? Good. Keep it up, okay? That will keep bringing more people back to us as we get vaccinated and, and increase our safety a bit. I have to admit, these scriptures are tough scriptures to preach on. Um, I have friends who, they don't get mad at me, but kind of like, why, why do we have to hear a scripture like this? That God's mad and he's going to kill people and be angry for generations. And it just is part of what we have to deal with. But it sure makes me work harder when I read these scriptures and try to deal with them. And then in this gospel, um, people often bring it up and then they make excuses for Jesus. Why is he so angry and yelling and turning over tables and throwing the coins? They say he had a justified anger. So let's try to unpack these a little bit because <clears throat> I do think there is an important message in them, although it's kind of hidden. Um, you know, I observe people. I grew up in a family that were six kids. My sister had seven girls. Um, and, and so I, you know, I grew up with all the squabbling between siblings and all of that, you know. And I've observed, uh, my parents were pretty, uh, pretty calm people. They're German-Americans and, and no drama, very little drama. But I've been in, uh, around families with all kinds of drama where somebody, one of the parents really blows up when the kids don't listen and says something like this, I told you to close that door properly and completely and you didn't do it. This is how you do it. Boom! Okay, uh, I can see why you would say that, but why would you say it that way? And I can see why you would do it, but why would you do it that way? Um, there's always, a, or there's often a better way to make a point than exaggerating and blowing up. Almost anything we do filled with anger isn't very good. So today in these scriptures, I ask myself, why say it this way? And we listen to the commands of God. I get that, and they're good commands. This, this, were, this was a time in, in the book of Deuteronomy, a time when, when people, uh, they, they, it was kind of a disorderly, a nomadic people, and this experience of God coming to them through Abraham was a, a new revelation. And it was very clear what God was calling them to, a life of justice and goodness and, and respect for one another. And so it's law after law, command after command. But what it did was organize that society. But then why does God say something like this? And for those who hate me, I will punish their, their children for the third, up to the third and fourth generation. And I say, oh, God, did you have to say it that way? But the hidden nugget follows that right after that. He says, but for those who love me, I will bless them with my mercy for a thousand generations. Ah, now that's my God. That's my God whose mercy never runs out. Goes on and on and on and on and on for a thousand generations. In the gospel today, Jesus comes to the temple, and it's hard to know exactly what happened. I mean, we see what he did, but why? It, it uh, isn't explained. You see, they, they had people who sold things at the temple because there were people that needed doves and pigeons and things for their, for their sacrifices to God. They had to sacrifice in thanksgiving for blessings that they received. 
It's interesting, last night uh, I asked the question that I asked last week, the question of the week, and the question of the week last week was uh, looking at Abraham and uh, how God was asking him to, to give up the most precious thing he had, his own son, sacrifice him like an animal, make a holocaust of him. And I asked people, uh, have you ever had or can you remember an Abraham moment in your life where you felt that God or life was asking of you the most precious thing that you had? So I mentioned that in passing as I was going to give the new question of the week. And after Mass, uh, one of the women in the community came up to me and said, Father, she said, I, I re really hadn't thought during the week of it, but when you asked it again, it hit me right away. And this is what she said. I was studying to be a nurse and I was coming up on my big major exam to, to pass it to become a nurse. And both of my parents, not one, but both got very ill. And I thought they were going to die. And so she said, I went to God and I said, God, take anything away from me, anything you want, but please on my parents. That she prayed it with all her heart. She failed her exam, <laughs> but her parents got better. And she said, that was my Abraham moment. I'm not saying that God made that happen, but... That's the sign. That's what I got out of it. So what's going on in this gospel? What is this really saying? So Jesus apparently came and saw the people selling at the temple, selling necessary things. But one question could be, how were they doing it? Were they selling and robbing people of money, especially the poor, the poor widows who had so little? And that's one of the explanations, is that there was something crude going on in the way that they were selling. And I mention that because, you know, people will sometimes say, well, why do you have fundraisers and sell things, have tables where you're selling food or selling things? And I say, well, it's all about uh, getting funds to help those ministries do ministry in the church. It's not to, it, to get people um, money for themselves. Now, there are people along the streets that come and sell food and stuff, and that's for them. And that's all right. I get it. I appreciate that people um, in these times, uh, it's very difficult to make enough to live on. So if they got the initiative to go out and sell tamales or anything else, fruit, whatever, good. But that's not what we're doing. When we're selling things, it's to build up our ministries and the work of the ministries within the church. But that's not what we're talking about. Jesus apparently um, found people that were doing it crudely and, and really robbing people. And or they were selling within the precincts of the temple. So it would be one thing to sell outside, even another thing to sell just inside the door, but only time we do that is if it's raining. But what if people moved into the middle of the church or up on the altar, by the side of the altar, or near the tabernacle selling food? We'd all be disgusted. And Jesus was disgusted. Perhaps that what was going on. But then we see the reaction of Jesus. And about the only reason I can see for that reaction, his excessive explosion of anger, is because he was fighting, I believe, for something too precious. And that was for the temple, the sacredness of the temple. And sometimes you have to exaggerate to make a point. Uh, we do it in all kinds of ways. Uh, parents who get tired of watching their children keep eating candy uh, um, the day after Halloween, and they just keep stuffing it in their face, 
and you've been paying for dentists and cavity work and all that, and, and they say, eat another piece and all your teeth are going to fall out. Well, that's not true, but it makes the point. And Jesus made a point. The temple is sacred. But then he went further. Typical Jesus. And as he made this point, um, this is the response of, and, th and this line just, just flies out of kind of nowhere. But the, the Gospel of John doesn't talk a lot about miracles, but it talks about signs. The first sign comes within the first chapter or second chapter, uh, the wedding at Cana. And it, and it even says that this was the first sign that Jesus did. So when he overturned the tables and everything and told them, you know, clear out. Don't make this a den of thieves. This is a temple. This is the response. What sign can you give us? What sign? So he gives them a sign. He says, tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And this is where all the action comes. This is where the dilemma, this is where everything happens. He's talking about a temple. They're talking about a different temple. They're talking about the temple of stones. And they mentioned it took 46 years to build this. How can you rebuild it in three days? But he was talking about the temple of his body. And that when this body was destroyed, crucified, killed, it would be raised up in three days. And this is presented to us in the second chapter of John. This is early, early. The first, the first uh, prophetic mentioning of his death and resurrection. Now, to them, if it happened just as it was said, of course they didn't understand it. Even his apostles wouldn't understand. What's he talking about? But for us, who know the story, we know Jesus' death and resurrection. It makes perfect sense. And why was the gospel written? For people to learn the story. So if they heard about a Jesus who died and rose, and then they read the gospel, they know the end of the story. And this makes perfect sense. But there's more. Because Jesus was not only interested in his body, which was a temple of God's spirit, but he's interested in our bodies as temples of God's spirit. You know, the best of our theology, it comes in, in uh, really the letters of Paul, when he says things like this, he says, you then, you then are the body of Christ. Is that just an image or does he mean it literally? We are the body of Christ. We gather together in oneness by the Spirit and we, we make up the body of Christ. And actually, we do Christ's work in the world. When we love and show compassion and, and deal with justice and forgive, we're doing what Christ gave to us. The Word incarnate becomes incarnate in us. And we become the, the, the temple of the Spirit of God. And in baptism... <coughs> We were blessed last night at the 4 o'clock Mass with a baptism. We baptized this little girl, and, and it, it becomes a, a real um, wonderful celebration within our celebration to say she is consecrated to God, and already she's a temple of God's Spirit, but now in a formal sacramental way, she becomes a temple of the Spirit of God. Literally, we say God dwells in her. And we use that oil that gets absorbed into the pores of her flesh and her body because what we're really praying for is that the Spirit of God would be absorbed into her flesh, her body, her mind, her spirit, her heart, her soul. 
and become a part of all her actions. But at some point, we have to go way beyond just making the statement, yes, we're temples of the Lord's Spirit. Well, if we are, then so what? 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 What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to live it in a way that his grace and mercy and love thrive in us and are activated and then lived out in everything that we do. If you notice the opening prayer, that collect, where we not only collected all of our, uh, or some of our uh, hopes and desires, listen again to it. They're usually, it's usually the best prayer. Well, the prayer for communion is excellent too, but listen to this prayer today. Oh God, author, author of every mercy and all goodness, who in fasting, prayer, and almsgiving have shown us a remedy for sin. So whatever we're doing for Lent is supposed to touch our sinfulness and, and, and do some healing, make us more. But then this is the petition that we ask. Look graciously on this confession of our lowliness that we, who are bowed down by our conscience, may always be lifted up by your mercy. To the thousandth generation, we would be lifted up by your mercy. Today we celebrate and honor the many temples that are sitting here in prayer and praise and listening to the word of God and opening our hearts to God's great mercy. May it thrive in us and bless us and through us be given to others.